and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kevin Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey, Kevin. How are you doing this week? I'm doing well. Good. Well, this week we are returning to the world of the Tenth Doctor, and we're covering the second and third episodes in the Tenth Doctor box set, Volume 2. So that would be the Sword of Chevalier, and that would be called Vengeance. So, yes, we dealt with the first episode last week, and, well, we had differing opinions on it, but I think, broadly speaking, it wasn't the worst thing that we've ever heard in our life. Let's start with the Sword of Chevalier, since it's the second one. How did you think this one went? This is also not one of the worst things I've heard in my life. Let's see if we say the same about the third. <laughs> uh, no, Sword of Chevalier, it's an interesting story. It thinks it bites off more than it can really chew, and doesn't really apply itself to really addressing all it tries to do. I guess let's get the elephant out of the room first. The central character, the Chevalier, is historically a sort of non-binary or bi-gender individual. And that's a very ambitious thing to sort of talk about. And very sort of interesting and inclusive. And so I guess props to Guy Adams for trying to incorporate it and give the sort of general attitude of it of, oh, gender is this archaic construct and... Or I were going to use she for her because she is how she is referred to throughout this story. That's how the Tenth Doctor sort of tackles it, is he uses he pronouns in talking about her past when she was presenting as a man, and then she pronouns in the present, because historically she was presenting as a woman at this point in England. And then there's the idea of, though, casting a male actor, Nicholas Grace, to play her, which does also make a sort of sense because the character, or I'm sorry, the real historical figure was assigned male at birth, but it just doesn't really, I don't know, it still feels kind of false and not quite getting it. And I guess this could be just chalked up to Big Finish not knowing any non-binary actors, which means you're sort of stuck in a rock in a hard place whether or not to do it. But even if they honestly could not find anyone who was non-cis to play the role, which, I don't know, I doubt, but even if they couldn't, Nicholas Grace's performance just doesn't really come off very well. He's very clearly putting on this kind of feminine voice, and it really does seem kind of tacky and lets the character down. I don't really get a lot of emotion from him because it's sort of hampered by the effort he's putting into the performance. So, yeah, it's a very tricky subject, and I am positive that they went after it. Very hard for us to talk about being two cis men as well as the writer... But uh, from my standpoint, yeah, I'm proud they went after it, but kind of iffy on execution and don't really know how to respond to it. Well, yeah, I think the first thing that should be said is that Big Finish deserve a lot of praise for actually trying to do this. This is not an obvious route to take uh, Doctor Who down. And especially, I mean, I think last week we mentioned, you know, that we have the big love story between Rose and the Doctor, and it's very kind of heteronormative. It's, you know, it's a man and a woman. Okay, one of them's a near immortal time lord and one of them's a, a young girl. But still, you know, it's this, it's presented to us as this kind of big love for the ages. And here, you know, putting this kind of um, sort of gender fluid sort of into the mix, it, that's a very interesting choice, I think, for, for that period, which is defined by, by this big romance between, you know, two nominally heterosexual people. Um, but, yeah, there is a slight feeling that they don't, they, they may have slightly bitten off more than they can chew. I don't mind that. I, I really, I really want to make it clear. I, I've all the praise in the world for them for, for trying to do this. And it feels 
very pointed, especially at this time in history, because we've had the emergence of trans rights over the last couple of years, for which this sort of man, woman, uh, sort of, you know, person who's presenting as they choose to have themselves, that's, you know, there's a very obvious analogy there. Um, so that's that's terrific. And of course, it's also being done at a time where we have the first female doctor, somebody uh, who has presented as a man for 12 uh, regenerations and who is now presenting as a woman. So, you know, there are very obvious parallels with what's going on, both in terms of sort of contemporary gender politics and in terms of what's going on within the show itself. I have nothing but praise for them for trying to do that. that that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and I, I, even the fact that Rose is very uncertain about quite what to do, you know, there's, there's that scene near the beginning where she says to the doctor, yeah, but, but, but is it a man or a woman? And, and she, she asks the question like six or seven times. That feels right for Rose, but it also specifically feels right for a character um, who's from sort of 2005 to 2007 when, when Rose was sort of on TV because the emergence of sort of trans rights and, and understanding of gender, which has kind of come up over the last sort of few years, that wasn't really something that existed then. And it is something that a character like Rose would not necessarily have exposure from in terms of her background. And it feels like something that, that, that wasn't just in, in sort of the general cultural milieu at that time. So um, I like the fact that she asks the question a few times and the doctor sort of basically dismisses it with a, well, yeah, but that's not the point. Uh, which, you know, quite, it, it's not, it's how that person is. So I, I, I like the fact that there's there's an emphasis there on on understanding, but also that, that because not everybody does understand, that's not the same as prejudice. Rose isn't prejudiced. She just hasn't had exposure. So she is able to have her mind sort of opened up a little bit here. That's fantastic. That's a really nice, nuanced take on it. I do, however, like you, wish the performance was a little bit less one note. It's it's a bit fey in places, and it's a bit, as you say, you know, this this kind of it's not really a camp voice, but it's a bit, you know, it's a bit Oscar Wilde or a bit, you know, whatever. It's it, it that feels a little undermining when all this other good work has gone into presenting this character in such a good way. Yeah, it. I don't want to be throwing any of like the phobic sort of words at this play because it really is trying hard it really does seem celebratory of the chevalier and it really does like like i said the doctor's sort of direct quote of gender being an archaic idea to him is very progressive and fun and like i said rose sort of coming around accepting it and thinking that she says she rules that's great and so it really does have its heart in the right place it's just an execution it's just sure stumbles about it and and i'd really like to hear from if we have any trans or non-binary listeners hopefully can you please write into us and give us your thoughts on the story because i would love to know if you think how well it succeeds or how well it means or whether you do think it is outright awful (laughs) what it's trying to do that would be also instructive i really want to know what you think because your opinion matters more than ours in this situation I can't say from my own history. I know that, uh, I mean, I'm gay, and when I grew up in the 1980s, uh, there was a lot of really, really stereotypical uh, gay characters in TV or in the movies or whatever. And it was one of those things that um, a lot of people at the time used to say any representation is better than no representation. And I'm wondering if that might also slightly be the case here. It's true that um, this character doesn't quite, I think, come off in the way that it should, but but the intention behind it is obviously good. And the simple fact of the matter is that this is proper representation. And, and that is absolutely something to be applauded in, in a time where, you know, 
we see in America, things are, are maybe not going quite as progressively as we might like under your current president or, or whatever. You know, it's, it, it's a proper piece of representation. And that is in and of itself important. But like you, absolutely, if there are any uh, trans people out there or any non-binary people out there who listen to this, um, please write into us and, and give us your opinion. Because after all, your opinion is way, way more important than ours is on this subject. On that note, I think we can get into the story itself, which is... I, mean, I think it's good that we spent so much time talking about that, the most interesting part of the story, because the rest of it really does feel kind of a letdown. There's not really much to it. Some aliens come into a party and start abducting people, and the doctor stops them. Well, yeah, that's it. What, what, isn't that also the plot of The Girl in the Fireplace? Because that's exactly what this yeah, reminded yeah. this is exactly what this reminded me of when I was listening to it. It's, you know, it's basically exactly the same. So that it's a story which is taking a... A, a genuinely historical character, but maybe a, a much lesser known one than the usual sort of celebrity historicals of Shakespeare or, or Agatha Christie or whatever. And and then sort of having them just collide with the world of Doctor Who. And and as you say, some ro- some um, some aliens turn up at a party and abduct people. Well, okay, in Girl in the Fireplace, they were clockwork robots rather than aliens. But I mean, that's a pretty slender difference, really. This This feels... Like it's very definitely patterned after um, the girl in the fireplace, and I don't really feel that that's to this story's advantage. Not just because I I do really really love girl in the fireplace, um, but also because it makes it feel I think maybe a little more derivative than it necessarily is. I think even just shifting a few of the basic details, if it wasn't a party or if it was you know something, it it, it would feel less like it was. This is how we did it on TV, so. Well, this is how we're going to do it in audio. It, it it feels a little bit like a photocopy, and and that's a terrible shame. I think there is a conscious effort here, just like technophobia in the last box set, to sort of emulate a kind of Russell T Davies story. Take a historical figure and then throw him up against aliens. That happened a lot in his era, like more so than almost any other era in Who. You have, you know, obviously the Agatha Christie episode, the Shakespeare episode, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it feels like you know appropriate that they would try to go for that format for a big finish but like you said girl in the fireplace it had so much more going on to it beyond that it had the time travel aspect it had the romance aspect there was so much more to that story that made it so much richer this really is just this weird three-headed alien coming to a party and abducting people and then the doctor and chevalier fight them off and there is a very limp climax in everything everyone saved there is not really a lot of substance to it and the Chevalier's arc of sort of irrelevance doesn't really hit a big sort of emotional point. It never really feels emphasized or natural to the story in a way. And the events never feel like they're building any sort of bigger theme. It just feels like stuff happens and then it ends. And that's very frustrating to listen to. Yeah, that's definitely one of the most frustrating aspects of it, especially because one of the things I quite like about the story is the fact that Chevalier is very nonchalant about coming across all these sort of various weird and wonderful things. So, I mean, earlier on, I said that um, that this sort of takes a historical and, and sort of crashes it into the world, of, a historical character rather, and crashes it into the world of Doctor Who, which it does. But what I quite like about it is that it also takes Doctor Who and crashes it into the world of Chevalier. There's, there's a sort of balance there. And I think you could do something quite interesting with that. Um, there's a sense when when you're dealing with something like Girl in the Fireplace, that's definitely being told from a very specific uh, perspective, which is the Doctor's perspective, and then a little bit with um, sort of Rose and Mickey. But it's not really being told from Madame Pompadour's 
perspective. Here, there is a sense that um, there is something of Chevalier's perspective. So while Chevalier has to put up with these weird alien slave traders or whatever, the Doctor also has to put up with going to a party where he doesn't quite understand the rules and then kind of almost ends up being an opera star. You know, that's that's that, it, it feels like there's something that's being reached for there, but it's way kind of too vague and, and unfocused to, to, to really add something to the play. And again, that, that feels like another another loss here. That feels like something that's missing. Oh, yeah, the opera star bit feels like a great joke that never has a punchline, which is <laughs> it, cause he has this off-screen performance that everyone loves. And I guess the punchline is that we thought the doctor couldn't do it, but he could. But then why was he so nervous earlier about doing it? It's very strange sort of beat that just feels like there to fill time. And this is a very slight story, only at uh, 40-something minutes, if I remember correctly. Yeah. It's, there's just not a lot to it. And you could have done so much more. I mean, given the next story about to talk about, Cold Vengeance, almost hits an hour. It, you could have had this top an hour, too, and got so much more into the Chevalier's sort of character deal and his sort of drama behind them. And you could have gotten more into the aliens themselves. They never really get a species name. And the actual names of the individuals themselves, I don't know where we even mentioned the story. They're... They're Joxer and Hempel, according to the Doctor Who wiki, which I have pulled up. But I can't remember if those names are even in the story. And I just listened to it earlier today. So that's a problem. There's a lot of nonspecifics here that really could have been fleshed out. Yeah, there's something very generic about the aliens in this story. And like that idea that it's three individuals within one, again, that, that feels like you could maybe do something quite interesting with it. And audio would seem to be the obvious medium to be able to do something with that. You know, you have three voices, well, two voices plus a dead one. You know, that that's that's maybe an interesting idea, but it, it goes absolutely nowhere and affects absolutely nothing. Um, except maybe this really limp ending where they just do one scan of the doctor and they realize he's superior. Oh, and God. so then the story's over. Could they not have done that 40 minutes ago and saved us all a lot of time? Because it doesn't, it's such a, it's such a poor ending. It just stops. And as you say, it's not like they were running out of time or something. This is a very short running um, story. It's, it's not filled up with anything. It's it's a a weird species concept where they have something so specific about them that can feel so unbelievably generic. Yeah, it's good for the good twist where they first talk to the groomer and you very suddenly realize that he sees them all as one person. That twist isn't very well emphasized. It just sort of is thrown at you. And it's surprising and sort of fun in the moment. And then nothing else is done with it. And the third face being dead, nothing is done with that. It's just a fact thrown out there that's interesting to think about. But... Nothing is done with it. That's so much of the story is nothing is done with it. I would much rather see the story where the Chevalier is still a spy because you could do a spy story around that. Put the 10th Doctor in a historical around that. He hasn't done one of those ever. And that would have been very fun. At least performed ever. I, I don't know about books. But uh, yeah, that could have been very interesting. Or I don't know, something else because nothing much is done with any of the elements thrown into the story. There's just a lot of things being thrown in here just to fill the time because it seems like the writer guy adams doesn't really know what else to do he doesn't really have a central theme to the story just ideas he's throwing and linking together i would have loved this story to have been a straight historical and just had the doctor drop into this world it, that would have been really fascinating it would have done something to kind of expand the horizons of the 10th doctor because of course he never got a straight historical, none of the new doctors have. And it would have really 
push the story into new and interesting places, it would have obviously made it less of a facsimile of, of Girl in the Fireplace. And we would have had time to explore the character of Chevalier in a much more meaningful way. I, I don't want to review something that we don't have, but that seems like a much more fruitful direction for this to have gone in. It seems like such a shame to have just sort of plodded through another race of sort of interchangeable aliens doing bad things and so they must be stopped. And, you know, again, it gives David Tennant the opportunity to do his big angry performance and, and, and you know, stop them. But we also had that in last week's story as well. Spoilers, we're also going to get it in the next one. And it just feels, it feels very nondescript. And, and yeah, there's so much potential. Even the Doctor said, oh, you know, I love the Regency period. Great. Explore that period then. You know, that's that's what you're there for. But that's not what we get. We get one scene at a party. And that's about it. Yeah, it's, ah, it's a shame. Uh, there's one thing that did make the aliens distinct. And that is uh, the fact that they're in the slave trade, not just the killing humans trade, like a lot of aliens. But they're, it's a very different objective for them to have that I... I can't recall off my head. I'm probably going who before, but not ever really explored. And again, it feels like here another idea that's thrown out there, but not really going into the implications of, but does get a little more mileage out of this one. It really does trigger tenants sort of rage acting in a much more meaningful way than just having aliens destroy the earth would. And it does, uh, he does get a great point and sort of point out the hypocrisy of the Regency era that they were, part of the slave trade still then and it is a very uncomfortable reflection of them that see aliens doing it to them as well but uh, again there's just not much substance to it it's just sort of thrown out there and then as just another point but it's not really it's linked to the rest of the story thematically that's true that's such again a fruitful place for this story to have kind of developed into the fact that all this kind of regency pomp and all this sort of beauty and all the rest of it is built on the backs of slaves whilst at the same time you have these um, slavers who want to sort of take humans for exactly the same function that should have some real thematic resonance but honestly it's quite easy to miss that listening to the play it's not something it's it's not even that it's underemphasized it's barely even mentioned and that again seems like an obvious place um for the emphasis of this to lie but it's it's just kind of skated over it's uh, the only other doctor who i can think of that really directly dealt with kind of um, slavery or, or, or slaves being bought and sold is, is Warrior's Gate and and there there was enough time because it's a four episode story to, to kind of explore the idea of, of people who have done terrible things in the past being redeemed or, or whether they need to be punished for their actions and, and how morally culpable different parts of this uh, these two sides are that's exactly the kind of exploration that, that this needs but it's just it's just glossed over in the most superficial way possible yeah, superficial is how to describe a lot of the story. There's never really the chance to sort of dig into that and to flesh out its ideas. It's pretty much more concerned with coming up with as many clever ideas as it can and then getting out of there before it can really dig into them in any meaningful way. And it's such a shame because a lot of these ideas are very fun and very interesting. So I don't know. It's, it's just a very frustrating story overall. Oh yeah, that's that's a perfectly fair summation. And you know, we haven't mentioned David Tennant and Billy Piper in this. Yeah. And um, you know, they're back up at 
uh, speed. You know, again, as with uh, last week's episode, they deliver terrific performances. There's a sense that, again, this is uh, exactly the characters that we encountered in TV. And I, I sort of quite like the fact that Rose gets to be a bit more proactive here. She gets to Sonic and she gets to sort of go mm. off and do some of the little doctory bits that, that normally would be reserved for, for David Tennant. So that's, again, that's nice. But mm-hmm. nice doesn't cut it. That we, we we've had enough nice in this box set now. You know, lots of infamy of the Zaros was nice. Lots of this episode is nice. We need something more. We need substance, or we need some kind of drama, or we need something that's going to drive this. And and it's not really here. Yeah, it's fine. Like I think we talked about a lot. Uh, Rose last episode about how she's just sort of in the story, but not at a much higher level before. Not only be worse, but she's just doing a good job. Billy Piper is doing a great job as Rose, but Rose has not really stepped up. And I'm willing to blame the writers here more than Piper. It's just she hasn't really given the opportunity to really shine in any of these. And it's a real shame because so she's just sort of coasting along with the doctor. And David Tennant, I'd say he's also coasting here. I mean, it's a great performance because David Tennant coasting is still great. But it just feels a lot of what we've seen from his doctor, very familiar. Of course, he's geeking out over the historical figure. Of course, he's having big body sword fights. Another link to the last box set is you get another sword fight-centric episode, which is, I can't remember. He only did that once on TV show, right? In Christmas Invasion? That's the only one I can think of, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's, it fits his doctor so well, though, so why not? But, it's yeah, it's not very... Uh, relevatory for any of them and i really wish it could have been i really wish we could have gotten something like death and the queen where it's very relevatory for their relationship and adds a new layer that we're returning to these characters to get something new out of them rather than just getting sort of more of the same yeah i think more of the same is a perfect submission of this play all right uh and I guess that brings us to the cold vengeance, which I wish was more of the same, but there's even less here. And that's <laughs> very sad. Yeah. Uh, okay. So cold vengeance. It's terrible. Anyway, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, no, uh, okay. All right. We have to say more than that. Fine. Okay. If we could get, uh, I don't know, 40 something minutes an hour, uh, menu in hell, then we can at least cover a little bit for cold vengeance oh i suppose so at least you and how things to talk about cold vengeance is an hour almost an hour long and has even less to it than chevalier it's just uh even more so things happen and then nothing of consequence happens and it's just very frustrating this is the most generic bland uninteresting Doctor Who story I can remember covering. We've we've had a couple of stories which we, we've criticised in, in other Big Finish releases which have been bland. Our, our old standby winter for the adept, of course. But but this is a whole different level of, of sort of bland nothingness. And and that almost kind of makes me angry because that for me that's the absolute worst sin that it's possible for Doctor Who to commit. And, you know, this is from the, the reliably mediocre pen of Matt Fitton. And and it's just so nothing. It's just a big 45-minute smear of, of nothing. I mean, I know some people, um, fans, uh, will be thrilled that the 10th Doctor gets to face off against the Ice Warrior. So I suppose we ought to talk about that a little bit. But the Ice Warriors... I just do not find them remotely so interesting. They're just, 
they're, they're one of those Doctor Who races that um, they seem to have become successful much more because of the costuming or the voices than because they're sort of intrinsically interesting. There's, there's nothing interesting about the Ice Warriors. The only they're, they're sort of the ultimate, just green invaders from Mars. That's that's literally all they are in their first appearance. And okay, they look good, especially for 1960s, and they sound good. But that's it. They have nothing interesting about them. And their one attempt to sort of give them a bit of dimension in the original show, uh, The Curse of Peladon, is immediately undercut by its successor. And then we just go back to the same bland, hissing, you know, stompy, stompy stuff. And, you know, it's... it's the, the new series attempt to kind of give them a sense of honour just makes them seem like cut-price Klingons. And the old series attempts, they were just generic invaders. And neither of those things I find remotely interesting. We've talked about uh, Doctor Who foes like the Silurians, who have generally one template to the story that they hit over and over again, just because it worked so well the first time, might as well keep repeating it. The Ice Warriors, I feel like, wish they had something like that. <laughs> it's, uh, they've never, I do like Cold War. Besides that, I think they've never worked well. Um, oh, they are the most interesting, like you said, at Curse of Peladon. I'm not a huge fan of Curse of Peladon, but they work, they're more interesting there because they're this sort of red herring faint. But beyond that, they've never been that interesting at all. They're just, like you said, stompy, stompy bad guys. There's no hook to them. There's no, and there should be. I mean, the idea of like a Martian race is interesting. And the fact that they are sort of fallen, and I guess, I don't know, the sort of tomb idea is sort of Cybermen ripoff. But I mean, sure, you can do fun things with that. There's a lot of great Cybermen stories about Cybermen tombs and such. But no, they're just always the most generic Doctor Who enemy almost every time they pop up. And it's so frustrating. Yeah, I mean, Nicholas Briggs, unsurprisingly, does a good job with the voices. And, you know, he's playing a couple of characters here. And that's fine. We, we know Nick Briggs can do good Doctor Who voices, and especially with this kind of classic monster. But it's just, it's not in service of anything. What, what the Ice Warriors need is that they need a, they need a Madame Vastra. They need something, or a Strax, they need something that helps to shed some kind of, not necessarily light on them, but shed some kind of nuance or something that means that they're not just stompy, stompy bad guys. And that's utterly absent here. This this is almost, I mean, you mentioned Cold War, but this is basically the same story. It's just set in a, a spaceship rather than a submarine. You know, this is another bunch of Martians and they're cut off from their own time. They're cut off from their own people and you don't know what we'll do and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Seen it, heard it all before. Yeah. Uh, all the humans and such aren't very interesting either. You have Lorna, which is very much the sort of the hapless person who gets caught in the doctor's way. I was just living the recycling could be the catchphrase of any number of guest characters. It's so generic for like a standby sort of victim. The space pirates are a cool idea. Uh, I know it's been done before in Who as well, but you know, I, I like space pirates. This could be fun. But, I don't know, Rona and Callum don't impress them, especially Callum, who's there pretty much only to die. It's a very weak character. Uh, Rona, played by the fairly competent Marine Betty, better in other things, but here, just pretty great. And, but not very inspiring as a character. She Again, nothing really here impresses or inspires in any way. Well, no, and I think part of the problem with um, a lot of the side characters are that they're just very 
they're very one note. Like you say, like one character is there to die, or one character is there to be referenced, or one character is there to be, you know, this week's sort of standing companion with the Doctor or, or whatever. And that's it. That's the extent of where they are in the play, and that's the extent of the characterization they're given. Um, okay, we have a, a couple of little quirks, but, but yeah, the, I'm only here to do the recycling. Like, like we, mentioned, um, we mentioned when we were talking about Infamy of the Zaros last week, we talked about class. Um, you know, this is obviously another working class character. So in terms of the class structure of how a lot of the Tenth Doctor stuff operates, she feels like a character who is of a part with that. But the character itself is so one note, so forgettable that it, it doesn't amount to anything. And, you know, she even gets a last second rescue by the Doctor because she's like, almost going to be killed. Oh, no, ah, she's fine. Ah, well, so why do we care? This just, it's it's... That's that's true. I think of basically every single character. Not that they get rescued, but but just yeah. Why we're not given any real reason to to care about them? Yeah, I think going back to class actually that reminds me of the one really interesting idea the story has, and I'm furious. The story is played out entirely over the TARDIS's scanner, which is the idea that the humans attack the Ice Warriors first, and this is, as the title states, cold vengeance on them. But the fact that then there's Ice Warriors still living on the planet, and uh, this vengeance would kill his own kind, uh, the Ice Warrior Commander's own kind, rather, and that they've changed the kind of peace of the Ice Warriors, but only the Ice Warriors are oppressed. And that is, they're working some great ideas there. Uh, humans as evil over aliens, obviously, again, not new to who, very not new to science fiction, <laughs> but it's, you know, something. It's something much more than the Doctor fights stompy, stompy aliens. And especially the idea of the Ice Warriors becoming the sort of second class on the planet. That's a fascinating story. Let's get that story instead. Not whatever this is. Oh yeah, people re hiding in uh, wheelie bins and trying to trying to cross space in them. Mm, fascinating. You know, you're right. That th those stories sound far far more interesting than than the one we get stuck with. But that's to me that seems to be one of the overarching themes of this this box set is that there are the potential for interesting ideas or interesting stories that could be told around the periphery of the stories that we have but that they're not actually the stories that we have. Um, and yeah, this is another perfect example. That's that's interesting. We've never had a, a race like the Ice Warriors put into sort of that kind of class structure before. Um, so you could do something really fascinating with that. But no, nope, it's the same old story again and again and again. Yeah, I think it gets into, like, flaw with both these stories. You mentioned it before, but, like, disappointing anticlimaxes. And again, this sort of ends with, the bad guy just sort of giving up, trying to self-destruct and kill the Doctor one last time, but they get rid of him very quickly. It's such a disappointing thing. There are so many anticlimaxes in this story as well. Even before then, as soon as the satellite starts careening towards Earth, the Doctor fixes it by sending it into the sun instead. As soon as it looks like Rose is about to fall into the sun, it's okay. She found a recycling escape pod. That's mildly clever. But as soon as the ship is about to crash into the planet... Uh, Brona takes over and blows it up. Every problem has a very quick and easy solution. I think the story is so focused on throwing out new problems and solving them, it should instead pick a problem and focus on it. It, it we could have gotten something, I don't know, like 42, where it's just a very simple setup and then we work through it to solve it. Rather, instead, we're running through so many potential stories without any time to dwell on them. It's just a bore. None of them land. That's the weird thing about this, because... 
there are these kind of quick setups and resolutions, it ought to feel like there's a sense of pace to this. Like, like 42 is a, a good parallel here. And I mean, I think it's a, 42 is quite a flawed story. But one thing you can say about it is it clicks along at a feral rate. It doesn't, um, apart from the brief cuts back to uh, Martha's family on Earth, it doesn't really stop. It's quite propulsive. Whereas here, there's no sense of propulsion at all. It's just setup and resolution. Setup and resolution. Setup and resolution. And that's it. None of the problems are particularly interesting. Okay, yeah, as you said, Rose's sort of eventual escape from crashing into the sun. That's probably the best of the three. And I don't mind that Rose is put in danger. Obviously, we know that she's not going to die here. Um, but that's fine. It's a comparatively, and I really stress that word comparatively, interesting or, or acceptable way that she kind of gets out of it. That's fine. But everything else is just so kind of, yeah, numerically calculated to get us to the next point in the plot. And I, I don't understand how you have that many crises and not have a sense of propulsion about it. But there's absolutely nothing compelling about about these, these uh, you know, they should be escalating. Maybe that's what it is. These crises should be escalating, but they're all played at exactly the same pitch. That's exactly right. They're all played at the same pitch, and the pitch is very relaxed almost. There's no sense of threat or tension in the story it all feels very laid back and all feels very same old same old and that is so frustrating to listen to a story that never picks up that always stays at the same pitch the whole time it's just exhausting yeah exactly and and honestly as far as cold vengeance is concerned i don't really have anything else to say about it we haven't covered it in any great detail but that's because there isn't really any great detail to cover it is by far and away the most disappointing of the three stories on this box set. Um, when we covered the first Doctor box set, one of the things that we, we said about it, one of the things that we commended it for, was the fact that each story in the first box set built on the ones before. So uh, you started off with sort of a relatively down-to-earth story and you built and you built and you built until you get this sort of big emotional kind of development and climax in, in the third uh, story and Death of the Queen, and, and everything kind of leads up to that. Whereas here, almost the opposite is true. It, it feels like a slight downwards, so you kind of start with a tale which is not in and of itself particularly terrific, and then gradually things just get worse and worse until you get to Cold Vengeance, which is actively terrible in a way that the Big Finish isn't often this bad. And it, it's, I mean, it's kind of puzzling in a way simply because this is a big marquee release you know it's the return of the doctor and rose this shouldn't be the one where you just turn out your most kind of generic material um and that to me it leaves the box set feeling very unsatisfying there's something very unsatisfactory about it um and i think that comes from a sense that a lot of the stories here feel to me at least very complacent um we sort of skirted around this before but it's a problem with some of the latter day big finishes releases um simply because um, there seems to be an attitude that the fact that they've got the people from the actual telly show as it is now, all in the same recording studio at the same time, seems to be enough. So the stories or the emotional contents um, are getting left in the sidelines. The War Doctor was particularly guilty of this. You know, getting John Hurt to turn up and do it was the achievement. And then we just get a bunch of kind of very generic war stories for him for the most part. Um, and it's really galling here because that wasn't true of the first 10th Doctor box set. You know, the, it was such a resounding success. We loved it. And I absolutely stand by 
what we said about it. So this ought to be every bit as good. They've proved that they're capable of doing it. But there's something very lazy about the three stories here. I think they're quite self-satisfied, a little bit smug, and just, just very complacent, as if, yeah, getting David Tennant and Billy Piper in the room was a big enough achievement. It is an achievement, but it's not enough. It, it, it needs to be more than that. Just having them in a room together isn't good enough. Yeah. Speaking of getting David Tennant and Billy Piper together, like, I don't know, you said again, they're just fine here. They're just okay. And I really want more from that. I know Tennant and Piper can do more than that. I mean, like we had the last boxes, the prove Tennant can do more from that. He's not gotten worse with it. We have other things Tennant has been in. We have other things Billy Piper has been in to show that they've only grown as actors. And yet here they're just, I don't know, they're just stuck. And it's definitely completely the writer's fault for not giving them material that really unlocks how much they've grown as actors, that really pushes them in the way that standouts like Death and the Queen pushed Tennant and Tate earlier. We need something more to sort of, we can get that sort of rush of nostalgia. Like, Big Finish can't sustain themselves just on, like, pants on the back for getting the actors together. We need the act, we need the reason to come back to them, which is to see new things. I mean, the reason why... What makes Big Finish their name for themselves is that they can take Colin Baker, that they can take Bonnie Langford and give them the scripts they never would have gotten on TV and completely like redeem them and like give fans of them something new. Or even characters that are already pretty popular, like the Seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldridge's Ace. Give us new things of those characters still that gives us new avenues to explore. If we're just given the same old, same old with Tennant and Piper, it's not going to be any incentive it's we still have some excellent episodes of television with them so there's no reason to come to big finish if it's just going to be if they're just going to give us more of the idiot's lantern over and over again yeah exactly the one thing that big finish sometimes comes in for criticism for is the idea that they simply live off nostalgia and we know that that's not true and particularly when you have them developing ranges like the eighth doctor most obviously, um, but also other ones, um, River Song or, or War Doctor or War Master or, or whatever. We know that those are, are essentially, you know, divergences from the normal thing. So those those are box sets. Those are situations that, that aren't just being fueled by more of the same nostalgia. But so much of this box set is let down by more of the same nostalgia. And you know, let's let's be let's be honest. There is a nice kind of giddy rush to hearing Billy Piper and David Tennant back together, and and you know this era is recreated very faithfully. There's, there's there is a, a thrill when you hear that that kind of Tennant version of the theme tune kick in with its big horns and it's all the rest of it. You know, that's that's nice, but that's 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 not enough. And and time and again, I think the overriding theme of this box set is just it, it's enough. That nobody really goes any further than it's enough, with with the one exception of trying to do maybe Chevalier. That's that's an interesting character. It doesn't quite come off, but but that's a genuine attempt to do something. That side, um, yeah, it's just it's just more of the same, and and that's not good enough. There's one more thing I want to bring up. We talked about how the Tenant Rose romance was missing last episode, and that still applies to these two stories very much so. There's another very important part of the R2D era that, and I still can't decide whether it's better or worse for missing it, but it feels keenly missed. And that's the whole last of the time lords idea. There's even a couple opportunities where it gets brought up, where the doctor asks the 
aliens from the Chevalier story to scan him, and they identify him as a Time Lord. And then here, he again pulls the Time Lord card on the Ice Warriors and expects that to mean something to them. But there's nothing more to it. Nothing about the last of the Time Lords. And sure, I guess you can say from a 2017 standpoint, it might be hokey to pull it out because we know the Time Lords have secretly survived thanks to the Capaldi era. But I don't, it was such an important part of Tennant's character, that sorrow about the Time War, the fact that he kept that last of species with him. It got play in almost all of his stories. And to have it completely missing from this box set feels very strange. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that being something which is entirely absent here. And what's really weird about Cold Vengeance is, again, they walk up to the line of it. I think this, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but Tennant gets a line about, um, there are rules about this. Well, there used to be. And it's, you know, it's obviously, that's the implication, you know, that, that, that the time lords can't stop him from, from changing time to save somebody or whatever. But it's just such a glancing reference and then just just never referred to again. And that's a weird absence to have yeah you're you're quite right about that this, this that feels like another aspect of the the tenant and, and davis years which which is just wholly absent and maybe that's something which will be addressed in future box sets if if and when we get them you know it's it's not that this box set has to take absolutely every single one of these sort of check boxes but it would be nice if it addressed or sort of mentioned any of them rather than you know a series of generic runarounds which which are essentially utterly interchangeable yeah i think Though the melodrama about being last of Time Wars gets a lot of mockery, deservedly so. It can be a little ridiculous at times, but it would have given the story something more. Like, and the story needs something more. And it's so like frustrating to see it so lacking at its sort of core. But, I mean, like you said, it just needed it. And it needed her something else. And so what we're stuck with just doesn't really have that. And it's such an important part of the tenant's character that, I mean, to do without it, it's like doing a Seventh Doctor story without a master plan. It can be done, but and it can be done well. It has been done well. But when you're missing it and you have a story as empty as this, you're like, why not go to that well? Why not do what the Tenth Doctor is best known for, which is the angst and the drama? I mean, you might as well if you don't have anything else to offer. Well, yeah, exactly. If you're not going to do those things, then you need to replace them with something else. And I mean, the thing about Cold Vengeance, and I, I'm sure it's 100% clear, but Cold Vengeance is by far and away the worst uh, story in this box set and the worst from um, either of the, the two Tenth Doctor box sets. It's it's it's, it's really dreadful. Um, but yeah, if, if you're going to have a story like this, then find something to, to fill that void or or find a reason for not doing it. It's also okay to take it the other way and, and have the doctor, you know, actively resist falling into, you know, the traps of his own self pity or, or, you know, being self aware enough so he can he can take a break or take take a step back from it. That's that's also fine as well. But there needs to be something somewhere and yeah, it's it's just not here. Yeah. All right. Well let's just hope that the next tenth doctor box set we actually do get Rose Tyler, Justice Warrior, and saving the Martians from the underclass of Enya, Enyo, or something like that, something more unique like that, rather than just more of the same Doctor Who monsters nonsense. I can only agree with that. But I think for now, we can probably draw our discussion of the second 10th Doctor box set to a close. So for now, we shall leave it there. Kevin, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Sure, you can get in touch with us uh, at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. 
That's our email address. Also on Twitter, we're at Talking Who to You. You can also find me on Twitter personally, at Kevyko. That is K-E-V-V-Y-K-O. And please subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a review. That helps us out a lot to find new listeners. And JG, tell them what we're going to be covering next week. Well, that's us done with the 10th Doctor for the time being. And next week, we shall be returning to the world of the 8th Doctor and Charlie. And we shall be covering our first Dalek story with them. So we were going to be doing Time of the Daleks. So we hope you'll join us for that. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>